Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. We are returning to a series we began at the beginning of this autumn term in the Ten Commandments. We did Commandments 1 to 6, and then we had a, a break and had a few weeks looking at invitations in Luke's Gospel. And now we're coming back to Commandments 7 to 10. So that brings us to this commandment, do not commit adultery, you shall not commit adultery. Obviously a sensitive thing to be talking about, to be thinking about something that in one sense puts us more at odds with the culture around us than some of the other commandments we've been thinking about do, although it varies. Um, but therefore we need to pray very much for God's grace um, as we listen to what he's saying here and what it means in our lives today, recognising our own individual circumstances and hurts and griefs and even guilt. Thank you. We, we want to pray for the gospel to take root in our hearts and know God's forgiveness as we think about these things. So let's pray now. Father, thank you for this time to look at your word. Father, sometimes your word says things which speak into our lives and in our, into our culture in, particularly, uh, in particular ways that can be sometimes hard to hear, hard to understand or make sense of. Help us to listen carefully to what you're saying here in your word and, and how it fits into the, the message of the whole Bible. And we pray that that would help us to make sense of our lives today. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Well, this week is another uh, potential turning point in the Church of England, of which we are a part. Uh, the General Synod will meet and discuss whether to approve the recommendation of the House of Bishops to allow blessings for same-sex couples to take place in church services and whether to press on with guidance that is likely to make it possible for clergy to be in same-sex marriages without facing any kind of discipline or being asked any questions. Now, it, it is a turning point for the Church of England because it is a departure from the historic, universal, mainstream teaching of every major Christian denomination, something the Church of England has not done before. Now, it has to be said, I'm not sure this week will be the turning point. It seems that whenever you think you're about to reach the decisive moment, it gets strung out a little bit more, but we'll see what happens. But in one sense, that's not our concern this morning. Um, but our concern generally is that the, what are called the founding formularies of the Church of England, it's uh, the 39 articles, uh, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the Ordinal, uh, these things are clear that the Bible has final authority in all matters of church governance. That's why the Church of England has been a natural home for Bible-believing Christians, like this church and many others, for many, many, many years. Much has changed over the years, but until now, these foundational commitments have always been upheld. So the question we're having to ask as a church is, what do we do if things continue in their current direction? How do we as a church make it clear that we are committed to the historic understanding of the Bible on these matters as much as we also want to provide pastoral care and welcome for all people? Well, these are, these are ongoing questions. Uh, we're not going to solve them all this morning, but they are relevant because of this commandment that we have just heard read and then also the reading from Matthew's Gospel where Jesus then speaks into that commandment and applies it to a number of different situations. In 1631, a while ago, an edition of the King James Bible was published which became known as the Wicked Bible because of a rather unfortunate printing error where this verse in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you can just about see it on the screen there, they've got the, the, the commandments written out, honour thy father and my mother, thou shalt not kill, verse 14, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> well, the publishers Robert Barker and Martin Lucas were fined £300, which was a lot of money in those days, and they were deprived of their printing licence. But perhaps it's an error that's become particularly notorious because the commandment that it misprinted is in some ways one of the most well-known, or certainly the most the one that's pretty notorious, and perhaps one that preachers would really rather leave out in a series on the Ten Commandments, they'd rather have to stand up and talk about it. It's not easy to, to do that. But instinctively, we feel it, it might be better if this wasn't here. You know, life would just be a lot easier particularly in our world today, where Christians, you know, in general, are ridiculed for holding what are perceived as out-of-date attitudes on sex and relationships. You know, the idea that God uh, says that sex is good, that he created sex for marriage between a man and a woman, and not outside of 
marriage between a man and a woman, not before marriage between a man and a woman, but within that context. That's what he created it for. That is the Bible's view. That is the, 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 what, what Christians over the last 2,000 years in all places everywhere pretty much have understood the Bible to say. Um, and so in our world today, we, we know that that's not something that people will usually go along with anymore. So we have to think about this and we have to take this commandment seriously in, in our wider context and think about how, what it means for us to believe this in our context today. And so we're going to look at this commandment, why it's here, and then we're going to look um, at, at why adultery gets so much airtime and attention in the Bible. Why, why this big focus on this? What's the big deal? And then we're going to look specifically at what Jesus himself says about these things and why this helps us. So there's two main things to see. You can see on the back of the notice sheet, we've got two main points, and then underneath with the bullet points, we've got two implications for each of them. So first of all, we're going to see marriage is a picture of God's covenant's love. Marriage is a picture of God's covenant love. You see, we won't understand this commandment that God gave at Mount Sinai if we don't zoom out and consider what the Bible says about marriage itself. Because in our, in our culture today, we tend to think of marriage primarily as something that's private between two people, just a relationship. You know? And, and, and that, I think that's partly why we struggle with so much emphasis being put on marital unfaithfulness, when it seems today like it should just be a private matter for the individual's concern and not really anyone else's business. But from the Bible's point of view, that is to massively undervalue what marriage is. The Bible begins and ends with marriage. So it's there in the creation account in Genesis before sin enters the world. Marriage is given to Adam and Eve together to enable them to serve God. And then also to fulfill the commands to have children in order to fill the earth and, and rule over it. So the Bible starts with marriage. And then it, it ends with marriage too, if you think about it, in, in the book of Revelation. Not marriage between two human individuals, but it ends with a wedding banquet with Jesus as the bridegroom and the church, God's people, as his bride. And in between, marriage comes up again and again as a picture of God's relationship with his people. God's relationship with his people is spoken of again and again as a covenant where he commits himself to them and they commit themselves to him. We've seen before, this is the framework in which the Ten Commandments come. So chapter 20, if you um, uh, if, you look, if you look back on um, page 78, you can see uh, where uh, the Ten Commandments starts on the previous page, page 77. He starts um, the, the Ten Commandments by saying this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, the point is he's already rescued them. He loves them. He's committed to them. And then, having established that that's what he's done for them, look what I've done for you, look, look how I've rescued you, look how much I love you, then he sets the boundaries on that relationship that he's already formed with them. So these Ten Commandments, as we've said before, are not here that we must obey them in order to get into relationship with God. They are here for God's people who are already in relationship with him. And then this is how living in relationship with him looks. And so he's saying, you see, to the ones who were already in relationship with him, he's saying the relationship between God and his people is not an open relationship. It is an exclusive one. You shall have no other gods but me, the first commandment. You're not to see anyone else, in other words, he's saying, in that relationship. 
And so then when God's people do then turn away from him and they sin, and that's the story of much of the rest of the Old Testament, their sin against him is spoken of as if they have committed adultery against him. It's, that's the way that, that, that metaphor is used. And so this, this idea of, of marriage, first of all, and adultery is far more than just about two individual human beings. It becomes a picture of God's covenant love for his people and then his people's disobedience and rebellion against him. So can you see that is one of the big reasons why that, what is going on in the wider Church of England and indeed in our wider culture is serious. That's why we don't just shrug our shoulders and say it doesn't matter because marriage is about the gospel. It's about the good news about Jesus. You can't separate these two things. Marriage is a visual aid of what it looks like for God to love his people unconditionally. So if you change what marriage is, you are changing that visual aid that God has very intentionally given to us. Okay, so having seen that, there are two implications. First of all, adultery is covenant treason. Adultery is covenant treason. I use these words for a reason, as you'll see. In, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14... God explicitly calls marriage a covenant. You can find, look that up later if you want to, but it's, it's there in Malachi 2.14. He, he uses the words covenant to apply to marriage, mirroring the covenant he's made with his people. That is why breaking the marriage promises is so deeply serious. It's as serious as breaking the covenant between God and his people. And one writer describes that deliberately in terms of treason in order to emphasize that seriousness. Again, these days, you know, as we've been saying, we don't tend to think adultery is that big a deal in our wider culture. But actually, we do still have a notion that treason is pretty serious. Betraying our own country, passing secrets to the enemy, or whatever. You know, we've just had an act of remembrance. We are so grateful that so many were willing to give their lives rather than, for example, to betray their country or to give up and run away. And we, we, we recognise that's a good thing when it comes to our relationship with our, our, our country. But the thing is, if the country we belong to is important and significant at some level, how much more fundamentally significant than that is our family? And that is how God has set up human beings to live and to flourish. And so the point is, if it's, if it's wrong to be unfaithful to your country, how much more wrong, how much more treasonous, how much more serious is it uh, to walk away from that family relationship? Now, I'm deeply aware that in touching on these things that we're talking about, something that may be massively personal, there's somebody who's just come in at the back. Would you mind just going to see who that is? They've gone downstairs. Thanks. Um, I'm deeply aware that in touching all these things, we're talking about something that may be massively personal and painful to some because of what we've done in the past or because of what has been done to us or because of what's happened in our family. Um, these things are not just things we can talk about glibly um, as if they're all about other people. No, they, they, they will affect us in different ways. And in fact, that, that really, that we, we can say no one in this room will be immune to what God is saying here. We're going to look in a moment at, at Matthew chapter 19. But in Matthew chapter 5, in 
the New Testament in, 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 in Matthew's Gospel, which is where we find the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks again about adultery, and he makes it clear this is not just about the, the act or the physical act of sleeping with somebody you're not married to, any sex outside of marriage, in other words, but it's about lust. It's about imagining and desiring what is contrary to God's law on sex and relationships. That is what is behind this, that what is being included in this commandment. So this is also, therefore, about fantasizing, pornography. You know, porn is often presented as entirely victimless, but of course it isn't, not least because of the exploitation of women, particularly, which goes on in order to make the images, uh, many of whom are living effectively in modern slavery. But more than that, it can be just as devastating for marriages as uh, actually breaking the, the marriage covenant by sleeping with somebody else. And it can as well be devastating for future marriages that somebody might not be part of now and therefore is you know, using pornography. That can have a devastating long-term effect. And those effects increasing in our culture are well-known and documented um, and agreed on. See, the point is, God says sex is very good, but it's so easily misused with painful, destructive consequences here and now that can be lifelong. And these are all implications of the commandment that you shall not commit adultery. So what do we do then with this? If and when we feel convicted by this commandment, and as we sang, we surely will at different times in different ways, we need to hear then the second implication here, which is this, that God's forgiveness extends even to sexual shame. He covers sexual shame from the start. Genesis 3.21 helps us with this. We'll see that in a moment. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. And that is clear precisely because of the way the image is used through the Bible. So sin itself is presented as being like adultery. Worshipping other gods is like sleeping around being promiscuous, that's precisely the kind of language that God uses in the book of Ezekiel, for example. But then see this, what does God do with his adulterous people who treat him like this? What does he do? He continues to love them. And he continues to woo them. He's extraordinarily patient, far beyond what looks reasonable or appropriate from a human point of view. And he provides a way back through, um, through turning from their sin and recommitting to him. And that is the gospel invitation that still comes to us in Christ, even in the face of serious sexual sin. And it is striking that this sense of sexual shame resulting from sin is there even as far back as in the Garden of Eden. So do you, you, do you know what happens in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve turn their backs on God, chapter 3. They listen to the lie of the snake, the serpent. And they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's not that their sin itself is sexual, but immediately we're told they suddenly realise that they're naked and they cover themselves 
They sow fig leaves to cover themselves. Their sin leads to a sense of sexual shame that wasn't there before. And what does God do? Well, he does remove them from the garden. But as he does that, even as he does that, there is hope in what he says to them. He promises, first of all, a descendant who will crush the serpent, saying one day we're going to undo what has gone on here. So he's giving them grace even as um, there is judgment for what they've done. And then God provides animal clothing from animal skins to cover their shame. He provides clothing from animal skins. He provides for them. They've been sort of trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves. No, he then provides for them. And it's a subtle thing, but that little detail is there for a reason. Adultery is serious. It's about unfaithfulness. But God's forgiveness covers over even the worst of sins when we turn from our sin and come back to him. That is the promise of the gospel. And that means whoever we are, whatever we've done, there is a way back to him today, through Jesus, through his death. That is the commandments and its implications. But, so often today, you will still hear people say, in response to all that we've just heard, well, that's just the Old Testament. And things have changed now. And in particular, they will say, well, Jesus wasn't interested in these things. You know, Jesus is all about love. He wasn't interested in providing boundaries on human relationships. So we should be all about love too and less worried about the details. But the thing is, that just isn't true. And what we see in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel is Jesus speaking clearly about marriage with, again, two clear implications that are really important for us to hear today. So let's see that next then. Jesus taught that marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. So let, let, let's have Matthew 19 in front of us. It's on page 986. Uh, yeah, yeah, that'd be helpful to do that. What's going on here? Well, as often happens in the Gospels, the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus. And they come to him with a question about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And we'll think why they ask that question in a minute. But first, look at how clear Jesus is in response. So verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. So can you see what Jesus is saying about marriage? This is so significant when, we, when you think about the debates going on in the Church of England and the, the wider world about marriage. You know, people say, oh, Jesus wasn't interested in this. No, no, he was. Look at who he thinks marriage is for. A man and a woman, just as it was from the beginning in Genesis. And look at how long he says marriage should last. It's intended to be lifelong. No one should separate what God has joined together. Well, then the Pharisees come back at him. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus comes straight back. No, that's not what Moses said. He didn't command. He permitted it. 
because of the hardness of people's hearts. And so first implication then to see here, divorce is regrettably possible in limited circumstances. That's what he's saying in verses 7 to 9. In other words, here's the intention. Marriage is supposed to be lifelong, but here's the reality. Sometimes it goes wrong. And in Deuteronomy 24, chapter 24, Moses used a similar term to the one Jesus used here in verse 9, which refers to sexual immorality and also covers adultery, covers things like abuse. Moses was saying, back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and this is what the Pharisees are referring to, Moses was saying that when adultery or abuse had occurred, that was grounds for bringing marriage to an end. And so you give the certificate of divorce to to demonstrate that that had happened. And what is going on here is that by the time Jesus came, people had started to teach that because Moses kind of mentioned divorce, you could divorce someone for no reason at all, any reason. A a kind of no-fault divorce, in other words. Any reason, major or minor, you could just say, oh, well, that's it then, we're just going to finish now. But Jesus is saying, no, that isn't what Moses was saying. It's not what he meant. He didn't command it. He permitted it in limited circumstances. So it's a little bit like when you take out car insurance and you get the paperwork through and it tells you all the things about the policy and then somewhere down the bottom of the policy, you know what it says, it says what to do if you need to make a claim. You know? Here's the number you need to call, here's the email address, whatever it is. And the point is, of course, that doesn't mean go ahead and make a claim now as you receive the paperwork. That's not what it's saying. That's not how insurance works. It's not there for you to immediately make a claim and get the money. That way wouldn't be able to survive if if they did that. Insurance assumes that in most cases, no claim will be necessary. But in a few cases, sadly, you will need to make a claim and that's where it kicks in. And that is what Jesus is saying here. You see, sexual immorality, like adultery, is serious. And when it happens, it's up to the innocent party to decide whether the marriage should continue. They don't have to end it. They can forgive. They can take somebody back, perhaps with evidence of real repentance and owning what has gone wrong. That is a noble Christian thing to do. But it's not automatically required. That's the point. And particularly where there's no evidence that the adulterer is serious about asking for forgiveness and intending to change, It is reasonable, if tragically sad, to divorce. Do you see? That is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not forcing a victim to take an adulterer or abuser back in those circumstances. It's important to see that. But it's also important to see that this doesn't justify divorce in any and every circumstance. So modern categories of divorce don't always map onto biblical ones, so we need to be careful. But nevertheless, it's clear that the kind of modern idea of a no-fault divorce is not something that honours God's intention for marriage. Because sometimes marriage is hard. Anyone who's married will be able to tell you that. And that's where we have to go back to what marriage is about. You see, it's not just about personal fulfilment but it's about modelling the unconditional love of God for his people. So what does God do when faced with the rebellion of his people? He keeps loving them and he wins them back. And for those who are married, 
in the vast majority of circumstances that stop short of adultery and serious sin, well, that is to be the story of our marriages too. We're not alone in this. So it's okay to say if we need help to keep going. Every marriage benefits from outside help from time to time. But that is the first implication that Jesus brings out of this seventh commandment for our lives today. And then the second one from verses 10 to 12. Um, in chapter 19, you can sum it up as singleness and marriage are equally good. Singleness and marriage are, are equally good. The, the, the disciples have heard what Jesus is saying, and they're thinking, did you, did you see this? It's quite funny what they say, isn't it? You, you know, they're thinking, what? You, know, you have to stay with one person forever, no matter what. That's really hard, and that feels quite a sort of contemporary objection. It's better not to marry then, surely, they say. Well, not everyone can accept this word, says Jesus. This word meaning the words they have just said to him. In other words, some people might say it's better not to marry and to remain single, like, for example, Jesus, the most fulfilled, perfect human being, did. You know, Jesus was single. But you don't have to. And then he goes on to explain what he's just said. He talks about eunuchs people who can't have sex for one reason or another because they were born that way, because they've been made that way, he says, and then because, a, a third category, because they've chosen that way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that's important to see because although there's a category of people who choose to remain single, he's just been saying, you choose to do it for the sake of the kingdom of God, you know, you say, actually, I'm going to remain single because that's going to allow me to serve God better. There are also here, in verses 10 to 12, two other categories of people who are kind of unintentionally single. And Jesus is saying, well, that, that's, just, that's just how it is. He doesn't say they've fallen short of God's plan for them because they can't marry and they don't marry. That, that's just how it is. And Jesus himself, as we said, was single as he does all this teaching about marriage. So the implication is that they're equally good. That is the point. But one of the reasons we've got ourselves as a culture into such a state about marriage and relationships and all the Church of England stuff that's going on this week, one of the reasons for that is that we've turned marriage itself into an idol. As if, if you're not married, you cannot flourish and be fulfilled as a human being. Or if, indeed, you're not in a relationship with another human being. You're somehow not um, going to flourish and be fulfilled. And so that's why people are trying so hard to try and include same-sex attracted people in the category of marriage. It's kind of unfair to leave people out. But behind that is an assumption that the only way to flourish in this world is through an intimate relationship with one other person. And Jesus is reminding us here that that's not how it is. Actually, it's not just same-sex attractive people you might have to remain in one sense involuntarily single it's something that happens to lots of people of whatever sexual orientation actually in one sense it happens to people who for whatever reason end up unhappily married as well if you think about it you know because the world would tell them to leave and find somebody else and God says well in the absence of adultery or serious sin or abuse in the absence of those things, we know you're not free to do that. You need, you need to, to press on. And, and that can be just as challenging for the person as, who is married as it can be for the person who is involuntarily single. 
And in our world today, this kind of thing is hard to, to, to hear and to understand. And we have to keep going back to what marriage is, not something purely for our own personal fulfillment, but to model the gospel to the world. We have to keep remembering that what has God promised? What, the, what does Jesus promise to his followers? Does he promise an easy life where everything goes according to plan, just as we want it? No, he doesn't. He says, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me. And he says that equally to people who are single, to people who are married, to people who are of all kinds of sexual orientation. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that will be a challenge to all of us, wherever we stand with him and whatever our marital status. Marriages point forward to the day when Jesus returns and human marriage to one another comes to an end. And there is a great wedding banquet where those trusting in him collectively become his bride. And there will be no more tears and pain and suffering and sadness that so often marks what we feel now in a messed up fallen world. Whether that's because of sin that we've done or because of sin that's been done to us. So let's keep our eyes looking forward to that day and that wedding banquet and that will help us in the here and now to deal with sin in ourselves and others to defend marriage as the church has historically received it and to live faithfully as God's people until Jesus returns let's pray now Father, as we hear this word, as we think about the commandments and what it means today, we need your grace, we need your forgiveness for what we have done, what we have not done. We need your healing love for the hurts we've received as well. We praise you for Jesus, that we find that in him. We need not face these things alone. And we thank you for one another in this church family that we can be a church family to one another. We can love one another. We can live out the gospel in many different ways and, and care for one another through all the ups and downs and difficulties and sadnesses of life. So help us to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.